If you have your Bibles, please turn to the book of Joel. That's where we're going to be tonight again. Uh, And we're going to be spending a little bit more time looking at what's going on in the book of Joel. Uh, I've, I've called Joel a prophet of gloom and hope. And this morning, we focused a lot more on the the gloom aspect of that. Um, I think that there are a lot of people who, when they look at the world around them, they're seeing a lot of gloom. And so I thought Joel was an appropriate message for that. Joel has gloom. He has a call to repentance and to turning to God. But then he also offers a message of hope. And it's really a beautiful message. It's a message of of restoration. And so tonight, we're going to finish the book of Joel. And we're going to look at uh, some of what God has in store. We're going to look at some of what Joel ends up saying uh, that I think is important and relevant to us. But Joel begins with a warning. And he begins with a warning for all. So this is kind of what we talked about a little bit this morning. But look at Joel chapter 1. And we'll read uh, the first couple of verses. Joel chapter 1 and verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, Joel, the son of Pethuel, hear this, O elders, and listen, all inhabitants of the land. So it's a call to uh, the elders or the leaders of the people, and then also to all the inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days or in your father's days? Tell your sons about it and let your sons tell their sons and their sons the next generation. What he's saying is something's happening in Israel, and it's something that they've never experienced quite like this before. It seems like they're living in unprecedented times. And I think, by the way, that is a feeling that people can have. Uh, I, th- I think every generation sometimes can have the tendency to feel like what I'm going through is something that's entirely unique. People haven't gone through this before. You know, this is, things are as bad as they've ever been. And I think sometimes uh, societies and cultures go through cycles, and I think that there are ebbs and flows and goods and bads. And and there's a tendency to think that, uh, you know, every older generation looks with suspicion about the younger generation and every younger generation rolls their eyes at the older generation. And that happens time and time and time again as as, uh, time moves on. And so I think in Joel, the people are feeling like something is happening here and it's unlike anything that's ever happened before. Uh, And we'll see what that is here in just a moment. But notice I mentioned this morning that Joel doesn't have an overly specific time frame associated with it. We're not told like who the king is at this time, and we're not told uh, a lot of that information that helps us date the book or to know exactly what the historical situation is. Uh, with Joel, we're given a rather broad message, and it's one that verse 3 says, tell your sons about it, and their sons about it, and their sons' sons. It seems like this is a message that is intended to be repeated time and time and time again from generation to generation to generation. This is a message that your grandchildren are supposed to hear just as much as you. There's something going on in Israel, and it's It might be about one particular situation, but the story is supposed to live on. I think, for example, like the Exodus is intended to be that type of story. A story that you tell your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren about so that they can remember the truths that came from that event. I think Joel is intended to be a message that when you're looking around you and you're seeing what feels like unprecedented gloom taking place, remember the book of Joel. Remember that others have gone through these types of of periods before, and Joel is calling you into its own story and into its own uh, account of these events. What is the strange thing that is happening in Israel? Seems the locusts. It seems like they're looking around and they're realizing, you know what? Our crops are devastated. Uh, The food that we had relied upon is gone. I'm seeing locusts 
come swarming and they're not stopping. Uh, there's a lot of discussion about whether or not these are literal locusts, like a, a real locust plague, which by the way did happen in, in ancient Israel. Locusts were a problem and they could come and they can destroy a year's worth of work and then all of a sudden you don't know what you're going to do for the rest of the year because everything you had worked for and saved for and planned for is now completely and utterly, utterly devastated. In my life, I don't think I've ever lost a second's sleep about the idea that locusts might be coming. You know, that's just not a part of, of who I am. But in an ancient agrarian culture, it could be absolutely and truly devastating. And sometimes when things happen in our world that are absolutely and truly devastating, we want to interpret those events. We want to say, okay, well, what caused this? What is the reason for this? And, and a lot of times people take their best stabs at it. And, and I'm kind of of the opinion that we should try to look and learn from what we see around us. But unless you're a prophet like Joel, you're going to have a hard time actually saying, oh, that tornado happened because this person did this. You know, anytime you try to get overly specific with nailing down why a bad event occurred, I think you're probably on shaky ground. You're probably speaking more from your own heart than God's. And Joel is an actual bona fide, verified prophet who's going to interpret this locust plague is happening and there's something you should do about it. There's gloom all around you, and there's something that needs to be done because of that. He's going to spend the first chapter and a half describing this plague in really vivid imagery. He's going to use a lot of different types of language. He's going to use the language of, of mourning and weeping in the land. In fact, you go through uh, the first chapter, and you see that uh, the drunks are wailing because they don't have their wine. You see that the land itself is mourning in chapter 1 and verse 10. It says, the field is ruined, the land mourns. Uh, sometimes, it's not actually rare, it's quite common in the Bible, that the earth or the land itself is personified as feeling the characteristics of what's happening in the nation. Like the, the, the people experience pain and the land experiences that same pain. Um, I mean, if you remember even going back to the Adam and Eve story, when they sinned and you're reading like the curses that come because of that, when it gets to Adam, God doesn't actually say, cursed is Adam. He says, cursed is the ground because of you. Like the ground experiences, the land, the creation itself experiences the groanings of mankind. And so even in Joel, this isn't something that just devastates people. It devastates creation itself. And the land is mourning. Uh, the priests, the religious leaders are mourning. People who make their living off the land are mourning. Uh, you can look at uh, Joel chapter 1 and verse 18. And the beasts are thrown in there. The beasts groan, and the herds of cattle wander aimlessly, because there is no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. So the animals are suffering. This is something that, you know, even, like, if you destroy all the crops, then you're going to have a really hard time taking care of your animals. If you destroy your crops, then your animals suffer. And if your animals suffer and your crops suffer, you're going to have a really hard time providing food for your family. And so, like, this uncontrollable flood of locusts that has come has put Israel in a tremendous bind where they are gasping for hope anywhere they can find it. Have you ever been in a situation where you're seeing something bad happen and there's virtually nothing you can do about it? Uh, when I think of those moments, the most clear image I get in my head of that happening was uh, it was in 2016 
there was a flood in Monroe, Louisiana, where we were living, and we, we didn't have uh, flood insurance because we didn't love in, live in a flood uh, district. Like, it had never flooded where we lived before. They, they, didn't, they didn't suggest flood insurance. In fact, after this event, I got flood insurance, and it was dirt cheap because, like, it's not supposed to flood there. Uh, but something happened. <laughs> It was flooding there. Uh, I remember, you know, it was raining. It was like the craziest rain I'd ever experienced. And it just wouldn't stop. And uh, I was seeing our street. And I saw, I was like, wow, our street's getting some pretty big puddles in it. And then I watched, and all of a sudden, like, it got to where you couldn't even see the street anymore. And I thought, my, my truck was parked on the street. I'm like, I'm going to pull that up in our parking lot. So I grabbed the truck, and I pulled it up there. And then I kept watching, and all of a sudden, it had gone up into our yard. And it's like, I couldn't see the bottom of our, like, our mailbox post. And I thought, wow, I've never seen this before. And then it kept going up further. And I thought, hey, I'm going to get the dog and go play in the water. <laughs> and so we went outside, and we had a jolly good time of it. And we played around. I wasn't too concerned yet, because it was still quite a ways from our house. But I kept watching, and like as hour passed and the rain was unrelenting, I was thinking, this is starting to get kind of, like it got up to where like it was at my truck's tire. And when that happened, I opened up the door and all I could see was just a lake. Like I couldn't see the ground anymore. I could see like the houses, our neighbor's houses, and I could see that one of them, the water was at their house. And I thought, oh wow, this, is, this isn't good at all. Um, and so uh, we actually, Lauren and I, we didn't have any kids yet, and we had uh, some friends who were staying with us. Uh, he, my, my friend, uh, he preached in, he was actually a preacher in Tennessee. He was in Louisiana doing a, a, a meeting for us, and he was staying with us, and we're like, hmm, you know, what are we going to do? We, we ended up having to move their car, I think, uh, because of it. But anyway, we're seeing this happen. And I eventually begin to realize this is going to be a more serious thing unless this rain stops quickly. What can I do to make this rain stop? Uh, is there anything I can do to like protect the house? And really, there was nothing you could do. You just kind of have to sit there and watch. And that's a bad feeling of realizing there's nothing you can do. And uh, eventually, our backyard, all you could see was water. Our front yard, all you could see was water. And our living room was about uh, you know eight inches or so lower than the rest of our house. It was like down a step. And I uh, was up late at night. Everyone had gone to sleep. And it was probably about midnight. And I finally started to see it. The water started coming into the living room. And I thought, all right, well, I got all of our stuff out of the living room, put it in the kitchen, and just, like, well, stop it. You know, there's, there's nothing you can do. And uh, so I, I actually went to sleep, but I set an alarm, and I got up, and I looked back in the living room, and our, our floor uh, was, like, floating. Like, we had, we had the, the laminate floor, and it was just floating on top of the water. And I was like, I'd poke it, and it would just kind of, and I was like, this isn't good, because if it goes higher, it's going to end up getting into the kitchen. And so we ended up having to, uh, the, to uh, have a friend come park far enough away where there wasn't uh, where he could actually park and we had to put our dog in a like in a laundry basket and uh, me and Lauren and, and uh, my friend and his wife uh, we like just left the house through uh, you know waist deep or thigh deep water and walked all the way to his car and we were like I hope it stops raining because my house is about to go under thankfully it did but I can tell you something that was happening there uh, the only thing, our living room, some of the walls around it had to be replaced and the floor and some things like that, but it didn't get to the rest of the house. But I can say there's a point when you realize there's not much I can do. I just have to pray an awful, awful lot. I have to pray over it. And it's like, and it's, by the way, that's not a bad option, <laughs> prayer, but it is an option where you're realizing I have to turn this over to, to something else because I can't do anything. And I think that in the book of Joel, 
that's ultimately what the call is going to be. It's going to, like, you can't stop the locusts. You can't save your crops. You just have to kind of watch and call out to God. You need to gather the people. You need to realize that there is something more important in your life right now, even than this locust plague, and that's what you need to reach out to. And in fact, by doing that, it might be the only thing you can do to solve this locust plague, is to reach out to the one greater than you. So in the land, in the book of Joel, everyone is mourning. The land is mourning. The animals are, are mourning. The, the priests are mourning. The farmers are mourning. In fact, they're all mourning, we talked about it this morning, like the way a bride would, if she's getting ready for her uh, bridegroom and all she has is sackcloth to put on. That's what the people are called to be. That's the warning that Joel is, uh, is giving to all the people. He's describing their situation and, and describing how things can, uh, can continue to get worse. As you continue to read, he uses language to describe it. It's like a drought and there's sorrow. If you look at Joel 1, verses 16 through 18, it says, The food has been cut off before our eyes, gladness and joy from the house of our God. Uh, the seeds shrivel under the clods, uh, the storehouses are desolate, the barns are torn uh, down, the grain is dried up, how the beasts groan, the herds and the cattle wander aimlessly because there is no pasture for them, even the flocks of the sheep suffer. Like, that's language of drought. Uh, like, and he's, he's going to use a lot of images to describe how terrible this is. If there's a drought, you end up kind of finding yourself in the same situation. The longer it goes on, there's nothing you can do about it. A locust plague is like a really quick drought, and it does to your land what years of a drought could do. Uh, fire and wilderness is some of the language that he uses. In chapter 1 and verse 19, Joel writes, To you, O Lord, I cry. And by the way, that's going to be key. That, that's what you do in this situation. You cry out to God. But he says, To you, O Lord, I cry, for fire has devoured the pastures of the wilderness, and a flame has burned up the trees of the field. And that's what a locust plague can do. It can be just like a fire going through your land and destroying all of your crops. It, it can happen in an instant. And all of a sudden, everything that you thought was going to be uh, your hope for the rest of the year, for next year, for your future, is now devastated and torn away from you. Uh, we read this passage this morning, but in chapter 2 and verse 3, it describes it like the Garden of Eden in front of you. It's like, I thought I had a nice retirement saved up. I thought I had a nice, like, everything was going my way. It was beautiful. But right behind them is a desolate wilderness. And as the plague makes its way through, it's turning Eden into wilderness. By the way, that's what Adam and Eve kind of did. Uh, you know, they, it went from Adam being able to be in the, the garden where he was able to not even have to worry about, uh, you know, like, planting in the heat of the sun with his uh, uh, sweat of his brow and the thorns and the thistles, but he got sent to the wilderness, which is, it becomes really, really hard to plant and to survive in the wilderness. And that was the, the result of sin. And this locust plague is being interpreted with that same language. It actually specifically mentions Eden. You know, it's like you're turning what was profitable and good and fruitful into wilderness. And you're seeing the locusts do this by the men. Uh, he uses the language of invasion and destruction, like from a foreign army. Um, you, can, you can see in chapter 2 and verse 5. With the noise of chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountains, like the crackling of a flame of fire consuming the stubble, like a mighty people arranged for battle. Before them, the people are in anguish, all faces turn pale. They run like mighty men, they climb the wall like soldiers. Like, this is the language of, if a foreign army comes in here and devastates your land, 
That's kind of like what these locusts are doing. And so this locust plague, which is kind of a, a foundational story in Israel, a locust plague. It happened to Egypt. Now it's happening to them. And they're saying, this is really awful. Like it's locusts, but it ends up being like a fire. It ends up being like a drought. It ends up being like a foreign army is coming and destroying our land. It's so terrible that the earth itself like is going to respond to it. Not only is the land mourning, but the heavens and the earth will grow dark and tremble. That type of language is, gonna, is going to be consistent throughout Joel as these events are seen. These are not seen as just a, a random, unfortunate happenstance. This is seen as something that is cosmic and that heaven and earth is involved in together. Uh, when you look at Joel chapter 2 in verse 2, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. Um, he'll describe it as a day of darkness and gloom. And, you know, I don't know that when this is happening, that it is, uh, that the sun's not out. But this type of language, this apocalyptic language is like, even if it's a sunny day, it'll be a day of darkness and it'll be a day of gloom. Uh, we, we've experienced days like that, that we might look back on the history. And I couldn't tell you what the weather was like on some of these days. I don't really, I either wasn't there or I don't remember, but they might be referred to as a day of darkness. And you can, you can, you know, names, you can talk about Pearl Harbor. You can talk about uh, September 11th. You can talk about some of these days that we consider to be dark and disturbing and gloomy days. Uh, darkness is often more a description of what people are feeling at the time and what the experience and what the, the spiritual condition is rather than just the way the sun actually looks. And I think that is important because there's a lot of that apocalyptic cosmic language throughout Joel. Uh, when you get to chapter 2 and verse 10, it says, Before them the earth uh, quakes, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon grow dark, and the stars lose their brightness. Uh, maybe there's so many locusts in the sky that you look up and you can't even see the stars. You can't even see what's above because they've blotted out the sun. But one thing that's interesting in there is notice that verse 10. It's before them. If you go back to verse 3 of chapter 2, a fire consumes before them and behind them a flame burns. Verse 6, before them the people are in anguish and all faces turn pale. Verse 10, before them the earth quakes. It's like notice how you have the locusts coming and it's before them, it's like a fire. Before them, it's like, it's like people in dread of an army. Before them, even the heavens and the earth turn dark. Like each one grows in significance before the utter destruction that is coming our way. That's the way that Joel is describing the gloom of his historical situation and of his context. He goes on to talk about this being a judgment of God, this being like a day of the Lord. Uh, the day of the Lord becomes important language in the Bible. There's a lot of different days of the Lord. Uh, when we think about like the coming day of the Lord, we often think about judgment day and the return of Christ and, and what awaits there. But there are many days of the Lord that have happened, and they are often days of judgment. They're often days that are described with this apocalyptic type language. The language of God sitting on his throne and looking at a world full of injustice and sin and wickedness, and God finally standing up from his throne and coming to do something about it. And when the mighty one, the creator of all, gets up from his throne to come do something about it, that's a day of the Lord. That's a coming of the Lord. That's a day where even the stars are in fear of what he can do, and they begin to hide their brightness. That's a day where the sun and the moon will hide themselves, and the earth will quake, quake and tremble in the presence of the almighty, all-powerful, eternal God. It, this language is descriptive of the powerful, almighty, ancient of days 
coming to do something on earth. Um, it's hard to know, I think, sometimes when you look at the world around you and you see hardship, you see natural disaster, you see pain, you see wickedness. Is that merely uh, bad luck that happens? You know, sometimes bad things happen. Or is that a wake-up call from God? Again, I, I said it this morning, and I'll, I've said it earlier, I don't think we should try to be overly specific in trying to pinpoint exactly what every bad thing means. But I think we should develop a mindset of introspection when we're going through periods of gloom. Not necessarily self-loathing or blame, but at least take a look at our lives, consider our ways, and see, is there something I can learn from this? Is there something I can change about my life? Is there a way that I can grow closer to God? I think that, in fact, that's always a helpful attitude to have. Uh, but there are certain things in your life that can be reminders to do that. And I think sometimes devastation can be one of those reminders. So then the trumpets sound. And uh, there's two different trumpets described. Joel 2 and verse 1 is a trumpet of warning to the people that an invader is coming. Uh, it's a warning to prepare for devastation. But then chapter 2 and verse 15 is another trumpet. And it's a trumpet to gather all of the people together and actually do something about it. Like, what are you going to do about this locust plague? Well, going out there and trying to capture all the locusts probably isn't going to work very well. But here's what you can actually do about the locusts. You can consecrate a fast. You can proclaim a solemn assembly. You can uh, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and the nursing infants, let the bridegroom come out of his room and the bride out of her bridal chambers. You can get the priests involved. You can call the people together. Maybe you can't physically solve the problem of locusts, but you can return to the Lord with sincerity and truth and love and see what he does. In fact, this is uh, the second time in Joel that this call to gather the people together for a fast in a, in a sacred assembly happens. When you go back to chapter 1 and verse 14, there's this call, consecrate a fast, proclaim a solemn assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of the Lord your God. And notice what they're told to do in verse 14, and cry out to the Lord. That's what you do. You cry out to the Lord. In fact, it, that's what he does in chapter, two, or chapter 1 and verse 19. To you, O Lord, I cry. It's like, I don't know what else to do. I have tears in my eyes and I have a cry on my tongue and I'm going to direct that to the Lord because that's the only place that can actually solve this. That's the only, like, there are times in life where there's devastation and there's hardship and things are dark and gloomy, but there is a God who no matter what you are going through, and even if you are the cause of it, who wants to hear with you and share with you in that darkness, who wants to sit with you in that gloom, who wants to be with you through the pain and the turmoil that you're going through. He wants you to cry out in those situations. And that's what the message of Joel is, is telling the people to do. So gather together and cry out to God with one another. It's a sincere call to repentance. It's a call to consecrate a fast. To, to, on the one hand, they're kind of going to be forced to fast, uh, you know, if the locusts continue to do what they're doing. But 
turn that into something that's being forced upon you and into something that you're deciding to do for the Lord and have a solemn assembly. I think probably at this point, most of their gatherings together are going to be kind of solemn. I think joy in the land is fleeting. In fact, that's, that's described in chapter one, that the joy is gone and it's been replaced with sorrow. Well, let's take the fasting and let's take the, the solemnness and the gloom and let's direct that to the God in whom we can always hope. Let's gather the people together. Don't try to face this on your own, but gather the people, gather the elders, gather the children, gather the bridegrooms and the, and the brides, and let's get people with one another through this darkness. And let's return to the God with all of our heart. Tear your heart and not your garments. Don't just go through the motions. Make it a genuine act of sincere, heartfelt repentance and, and, and of, of worship and, and, and of petition to our God. Let the priests weep and cry out to the Lord. Um, this is a call from the least to the greatest to turn to God. It, it kind of reminds me of what uh, happens in the book of Jonah. And you go to the book of Jonah and Nineveh hears about their destruction and you get this unbelievable description of repentance where it's like put sackcloth on the animals from the king all the way down to the children to the animals like everyone is supposed to fast put on sackcloth repent and and it happens at this message that Jonah preaches and what Joel is saying is learn from those Gentiles (laughs) do that type of thing here let's come together and let's recognize that we're suffering So let's suffer with one another, turn our suffering over to God, and put our trust and our hope in him. Because as Joel ends, there is always hope when you trust in God. God is the God of a hopeful future. No matter what pain you may be experiencing, you can trust in the hope of God. God's blessings are described. After this section, right here in the middle, in Joel chapter 2, verses like 12 through 17, where he says, gather the people when he says all this stuff. If you read the rest of Job, from, from like Job 2.18 through the rest of the book, it's, it's a lot about what God is going to do as a blessing to Jerusalem and, and to Israel. It's about what God is going to do for his people. And you'll see a lot of good things. So if you're kind of thinking about what the book of Joel is, um, the first chapter and a half, are gloom in the sorrow of this locust plague. There's a couple verses in the middle that are saying, hey, call a fast, tear your heart and not your clothes, return to God, weep, you know, like this is a call to repentance. And then the last chapter and a half is about God's restoration and about the hope that God has in store for his people. God relents concerning calamity. That, that's, that's quoted right here in Joel chapter 2 in verse uh, 13, right at the end of it. That comes from the book of Exodus. That is key to our understanding of God. So when you see calamity, take hope in the fact that God does not stay angry forever. God does not keep calamity going forever. God relents concerning calamity. By the way, that verse is also quoted in Jonah. And Jonah's mad about it because God relented concerning the calamity that he had for Nineveh. And Joel, Jonah, he's, he's, he's pouting over on top of a hill looking at the city and he's all mad. And God asks him why he's mad. And he says, because I knew this. I knew this back when I was with my own people. This is why I fled to Tarshish. Because I knew that you were a God who's gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. And it's like this beautiful description of God 
is turned into a complaint against God because it's God's doing it for other people. Well, here, and I think this is one of the points of Jonah, isn't just to talk about Nineveh. It's for Israel to realize, hey, sometimes we're in that same boat and we could learn even from these Gentiles. Um, right here, you're learning that same thing about God. In Jerusalem is being told, so you repent. So you turn to God. You put your trust in him and see what good things God can do. And guess what they are? Look at verse 18. Then the Lord will be zealous for his land, and he will have pity on his people. And the Lord will answer and say to his people, Behold, I'm going to send you grain, new wine and oil, and you will be satisfied with them, and you'll be full. And I will never again make you a reproach among the nations, but I will remove the northern army away from you, and I will drive it into the parched and desolate land. It's, uh, just keep reading, and it's, it's all of the language that was used to describe the calamity in the first chapter and a half, the reverse of that is going to be used. The, the arm, like the military language, it's like I'm going to be driving the army away. In fact, he gets really specific with that. Uh, when you keep reading down uh, and you get to verse 25, he says, Then I will make up to you the years that the swarming locust has, uh, has eaten, and the creeping locust, the stripping locust, and the gnawing locust, my great army which I sent among you. So the, the locusts are what the army is. And what he's saying is the years that were taken by the swarming, creeping, stripping, and gnawing locusts, I'm going to restore those. That's the same list that's given back in chapter 1 of verse 4. What the gnawing locust has left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust has left, the creeping locust has eaten. What the creeping locust has left, the stripping locust has eaten. And he's going to go one by one through the first part of Joel and the pain that is seen there, and he's going to restore and bless his people again in the second part of Joel. So there is gloom but there's also hope on the other side of it. And you see that throughout this, throughout this book. So you get to verse uh, 21 of chapter 2. Do not fear, O land. Rejoice and be glad, for the Lord has done great things. Do not fear, beasts of the field. Remember, the land was mourning and the beasts were mourning in chapter 1. Both of those are said. Well, right here, he tells the land and he tells the beasts not to mourn and not to fear. God is with his people again. Verse uh, 23, So rejoice, O sons of Zion, and be glad in the Lord your God, for he has given you the early rain for your vindication, and he has poured down for you the rain. The language of drought that you saw earlier now is being replaced with the language of rain falling upon the people. This section right here is enumerating God's blessings and the reversal of what you saw in the early part of the book. God's Spirit is going to be with his people. Rather than God seeing sin among his people and God seeing the, the consequences or the hardships that they're going through and deserting them for another or leaving them in their distress, instead what God does is he promises a day where he will pour out his spirit on all of them. God's not going to leave you in this hardship, but God is actually going to be present with you through his spirit. And so that becomes a really valuable lesson in the book of Joel as people are suffering that God promises the goodness of his spirit. As Christians, we know this passage in Joel chapter 2 and verse 28. It says, after this, 
Uh, it will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters will prophesy, and your old men will dream dreams, and your young men will see visions. Even your male and female servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will display wonders in the sky and on earth, bloods, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon into blood, before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved or will be delivered. If you're reading the book of Joel and you're seeing, like so far there's all been all this cosmic language about this locust plague has blotted out the sun, now you're realizing, well, God is going to, in a good way, demonstrate his wonders in the skies above. And he's actually going to be present with us through the outpouring of his spirit. And whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And by the way, when we talk about calling on the name of the Lord, that's what we've seen like over and over again. When they're told in chapter 1 and verse 14 to cry out to the Lord. And when they're told uh, to gather the people together and return to the Lord, like they're supposed to call on the name of the Lord. So what will happen to the one who calls on the name of the Lord? That's the one who's going to be saved. So in its original context, that seems to be about God saving his people from the calamity and the plagues. But what's fascinating is the New Testament authors pick up on this and say, this very same idea applies to our world here today. This is the passage that's quoted in the book of Acts on the day of Pentecost, when the disciples in a sin-sick world that had just crucified the Messiah offers a message of hope saying, God has not given up on us for crucifying the Messiah. Instead, he's pouring out his spirit upon us right now. That's happening before your very eyes. And this idea like continues throughout Acts. And you see glimpses of it in Luke building up to it, where God's presence among his people, even in their sin and darkness, is, is a message of salvation to whoever calls on the name of the Lord. And that idea of whoever calls on the name of the Lord. And the idea that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind is central to Acts as the message of the salvation is taken to nation after nation after nation. It, it, it's a way of saying that what you saw in the book of Joel, it wasn't just for one group of people at one time period way back then about one historical circumstance about one locust plague. No, it's a story you tell your children and their children and their children, like, like the first two verses of Joel says. This is a message that is repeated and lived out. It's a message that is central to what Christianity was about. Paul quotes from this passage in the book of Romans when he talks about his very ministry, that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how will they hear unless one preach? And how will one preach unless he is sent? And so he, that, that's uh, Romans chapter 10. Paul goes through this, but it, it stems from this idea right now that when there is calamity, there's one thing that needs to be done and salvation follows it. And that is calling on the name of the Lord. And so that's a, a central message to Joel, and it's a central message to the New Testament writers. And it comes from the idea of God is salvation from calamity. He's who you turn to in the times of darkness. You keep reading, and he will talk uh, explicitly about God's restoration. Chapter 3 and verse 1. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, there's something else he's going to do. He says, like, the time's coming, and he's just described all of this as restoring the goodness to Judah and Jerusalem, to those who call on the name of the Lord. He's going to also then act as judge. In chapter 3 and verse 2, when he restores the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, 
where I will enter into judgment with them there. Uh, the Jehoshaphat, uh, Yah, is, is a lot of times like, so the name Joel, it's J-O-E-L. Uh, that J-O in English is, is Yah for Yahweh. It's a, it's a contraction of the divine name of God. And El, Joel, is Elohim. Uh, so it's like what Joel's name means is the Lord is God. Well, names are kind of important. And right here when he talks about uh, the, the valley of Jehoshaphat, that's Yah for Yahweh, Shaphat, which would be like judge. And so what he's saying is, I'm going to go to the valley where God is judge with all of the nations. And when he does that, that makes the second part of the sentence make sense. I will enter into judgment with them there. Um, The nations that have caused problems for Israel and that have been uh, against Israel, that have been violent towards Israel, God is going to then judge those nations. And I think there's an important message there that as God blesses his people, he also turns in judgment against the darkness and the calamity of the world around us. God is a God who is loving and kind, but he is also a God of wrath, and God does punish sin. And so there's an idea in the Bible, and it pops up numerous places, and it pops up in in Paul's writings in Romans, where God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, and that we leave wrath to God. Sometimes when you're looking at the sin-sick world around us and the evil around us, I don't think it's wrong to take hope in the fact that evil will be made right, even in the wrath of God. God does punish wickedness, and sometimes that's a good thing. Wickedness should be punished. And so when we talk about the goodness of God, we often talk about his love and his mercy and his long-suffering and his patience and his loving-kindness and all of that, and we should. But even the wrath of God falls under the umbrella of the goodness of God, because some things deserve wrath. And God is the best judge for that. He, we're not the best judge of that. That's why we give wrath to him. We don't need to go out and try to mete out vendettas or try to get revenge. That's not our business because we trust in a God who takes perfect vengeance and a God who meets out ideal and perfect wrath. And so the last chapter of, of Joel focuses a lot on that aspect of God, that he is a judge and he's a perfect judge and he is wrathful and he has perfect wrath that you can trust in his wrath. And so when you get to like chapter 3 and verse 12, he says, let the nations be aroused and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. That's the same phrase again. And there I will sit to judge among the surrounding nations. And God is fit to do that. Uh, God's judgment is something we can always take hope in. So he will restore the blessings of those who call out to the Lord, and he will judge those who continue to cause problems and destroy his good world. When you get to chapter 3, verses 18 and 19, notice the restoration of the land and then also the judgment. He says in verse 18, in that day, the mountains will drip with sweet wine. By the way, uh, the mountains dripping with sweet wine, that sweet wine is the very thing that the drunkard was mourning about not having in chapter 1. In chapter 1 and verse 5, Awaken drunkards and weep and wail, you wine drinkers, on account of the sweet wine that was cut off. Well, that's what the locusts have done. God's going to restore that to the people. Like every hardship just about that you see in the first half, in the second half you see it specifically mentioned as being restored to the people. Uh, The mountains will drip with sweet wine, the hills will flow with milk, the brooks of Judah will fill with water, and a spring will go from the house of the Lord to water the valley of Shittim, Egypt, however, will become a waste, and Edom 
will become a desolate wilderness. Um, early, this is kind of a play on what was said earlier. With Eden being becoming a desolate wilderness, now the nation of Edom will become the wilderness. Uh, and he, he goes on to describe that, verse 20, Judah will be inhabited forever in Jerusalem for all generations, but I will avenge their blood, which I have not avenged, for the Lord dwells in Zion. God's judgment is what this book ends with, but even judgment is in the context of blessing and future restoration. There is a passage in chapter 3 and verse 14, however, that uh, describes another valley. You've seen the valley of Jehoshaphat twice. There's a valley of decision in chapter 3 and verse 14. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. Uh, The language again is cosmic. Verse 15, the sun and the moon grow dark, and the stars lose their brightness. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth tremble. But the Lord is a refuge to his people and a stronghold for the sons of Israel. It's like even if all of the earth around you is turning to darkness and shattering, there is a refuge that you turn to, and it's the Lord's. And so when you're brought to the valley of decision, it's decision time. Um, commentators uh, kind of go back and forth a little bit sometimes about whether or not this valley of decision is the people's decision to decide to choose God or whether it's God's decision to judge the people. I tend to think it's God's decision to judge the people. I think it's the same idea that you see earlier, the valley of Jehoshaphat, God is the judge, and he will look down and he will judge the people. But those are not mutually exclusive ideas because if you've been reading Joel up to this point, who is it? that God is going to save. It's those who call on the name of the Lord. It's those who consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people together that return to the Lord with all of their heart. They tear their heart and not their garments. This is a passage calling for repentance. It's a passage that's calling for people to decide for God and the God who is the judge and who makes the decisions will judge to bless his people and to put an end to the wickedness that has been uh, plaguing them. So Joel, it's an interesting book. It's a combination from beginning to end of gloom and of hope. Uh, You see how gloom is met with repentance, which is met with hope for a better future. And I would say when you face gloom in your life, Joel's probably a pretty good book to remember. It's probably a pretty good pattern to get into of when you see calamity, cry out to the Lord and trust in his goodness and see what he does. Um, I don't always know what God is going to do. I don't always know how long calamity will last. Joel doesn't either. He says in chapter 2 and verse 14, for who knows whether he will turn and relent. Uh, I don't exactly know what God's uh, future holds, but I do know that no matter what, you can put your trust in him. I do know that he is greater than whatever calamity we face in a day-to-day basis. And so if there's one place to turn in times of hardship, it's to the Lord our God. If there's anyone here who wants to become a Christian tonight or would like the prayers of the church, please let that be known. Come and sit on the front row while we stand and as we sing.